listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest today is a British actor who has credits to his name, including The Iron Lady, War Horse, Star Wars, The Force Awakens. He's also cast on the AMC show Preacher and, of course, plays the private secretary to the Queen as Tommy Lassells in the Netflix series The Crown. Pip Torrens, welcome to Shoot It Now. Thanks, great. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on the show. The Crown is such a runaway hit for Netflix. It's a show that creates highly charged emotions, volatile situations. Of course, <laughs> it is steeped in history. And here you are, right in the middle of playing an influential role as Tommy Lassells, the private secretary to both King George VI and Queen Elizabeth II. Talk us through how you first heard about the series Netflix was planning and about this character of Tommy Lassells. And I also want to know about the audition process that led you to securing one of the pivotal characters in The Crown. Well, that's that's quite a detailed uh, question. Let me see. We filmed, I think we started filming season one in 2016. And I think I was approached about it at the end of the previous year. It was being cast by Nina Gold. I realize now I was seen early on in the casting process. And uh, Peter Morgan, the writer, said on one occasion that, you know, he, he had me in mind from an early stage, which is flattering. And I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. But there'd been a number of readings, sort of quite large scale rehearsed readings of season one, as I remember, which was staged in a place called the National Liberal Club in London, which is this very daunting, rather oversized club um, just off Trafalgar Square. And executives and producers and various people were were set out in rows of chairs. And we did these sort of large-scale open readings, unlike what a, a script reading normally is. As a kind of pitch, I suppose, to Netflix and other people, I realized this looking back. I assumed that I was sort of being seen because I'd been helpful in, in that process. Peter said he liked me for the for the character of Tommy realized this was a part with enormous potential and that a lot of the scenes, I think, in fact, the Townsend scene, the scene with Peter Townsend was the one I actually did in my audition, as I remember it. So I'd memorized and I learned the hell out of it, which is always a help, and sort of performed it to, to the best of my ability. And that was fine. And then I didn't hear anything for about two months. My agent at the time kept saying, no, they like you, they like you, they haven't decided. And this is a situation which, as a character actor or a supporting actor, I, I've been in before on large projects where it's quite possible that they like you, they'll pencil you in, as it were. But what they're really doing is juggling the principal actors and finding out who's going to work with who. And it can come down to quite banal differences. It's not that Claire Foy wasn't the first choice. I think she probably was for the Queen. It's not that Matt Smith wasn't the first choice for, for Philip. And likewise, it's just that these choices have to be balanced. And that's where someone like Nina, the casting director, is so incredibly skillful. I waited and waited and waited. And then it was all confirmed. And that was very interesting. And then went along and started having meetings. And at that stage, it was it was exciting because it was a big project. But you have to remember that five years ago, Netflix was not the kind of colossal behemoth that is now. It was something that we were all a bit curious about. And I remember in the early read-throughs, there was a sort of pause, and someone said to Peter Morgan, you know, Peter, you know, this isn't going out on a terrestrial platform, so we saw, you know, people are going to see this. And he then gave us a sort of potted lecture on the evolution of, uh, of Netflix and how it was expanding exponentially, which we, we kind of took with a slight pinch of salt. <laughs> you know, it then became clear that he was right. But the audition process was, it was straightforward, but then there was a protracted period, a long period of waiting, then it all came good. And after that, I mean, I was fairly clear in my mind that this could be a complete kind of game changer. It was obvious they had this huge budget. And as Stephen Daldry said, that really enabled them to make it look great. But it also crucially enabled them to get exactly who they wanted and write the show the way they wanted and steer the course they did. So just coming back to the table read, 
It mm. was a table read or was there a little bit more of sort of playing out a, out a scene? You mentioned that they wanted to use it as part of the pitch, so presumably it was being filmed. Yes, those table reads were quite interesting. I'd sort of workshopped scripts in the early stages. I mean, I went in and did a couple of days on the Benedict Cumberbatch movie about Alan Turing. What was that called? I can't remember. The imitation game. Imitation game, exactly. And that's interesting. So, the, you know, and any, any stage, I'm sure any film actor will tell you, any kind of rehearsal period away from the, the, the set in the weeks leading up to, to filming is going to be useful for an actor. And, and you know, ideally, you, you have a lot of sitting around and reading. But those big reads were less about, you know, no one was cast in those, in those public reads for execs and so on. But it was, it was very much a tryout. And I think it was for Peter and, and the other you know, producers to, to hear the thing. And, and writers will always say, you know, it's a great, great help to hear stuff. You often talk to writers at read-throughs and they say, it's fantastic. I, I've got more confidence in it now than before. And it's simply that you've inhabited it, if only for an hour or so, and made them hear their words, which is useful because sometimes there are quite clearly parts that don't work out loud. And, you know, even now I'll, I'll read a script and get to a, a passage that doesn't work, even if it's the night before on something. And you think, well, wait a minute, why have they written that? Because if you say it out loud, it just doesn't sound right, or the adjectives are wrong, or something's not quite right. So any time spent beforehand on on vocalizing and any kind of table read, whether you know you're actually moving around and blocking the thing or not, uh, is going to be very very useful. Yeah, I find it interesting with the table reads. Normally, I, I find them a complete waste of time, but from a writing perspective. As you say, you get to hear the word, so it's invaluable. And with casting, I have always found that great to actually hear the words. I think probably the English give a little bit more than the Americans because a lot of directors complain that the Americans will hold back on a table read, whereas probably you know the Brits, same as Australians and the Kiwis, will give it their all. So it becomes a little bit more of something to actually hear. Yeah, yeah. And it is interesting. And, and in the case of The Crown, I suppose, if you talk to the actors who are participating, they would say, well, this is kind of my audition for this show if it ever comes along. So I'm going to give it my best because I know there are real live TV execs from all over the world sitting out there. I mean, there are different versions of this. I, I always love going to read throughs, however small my part might be for, for TV productions, for example, because they're very often the only time you get to see everybody in the room at the same time. Also, the heads of department, the different, you know, different crew members, certainly the sort of art department and costume and wardrobe. And there is a kind of theatricality. There's a kind of, you know, conference feel to these to these reads. They tend to arrange the tables in a square and everyone faces in. And then the heads of department sort of deferentially sit on the, the outskirts, as it were. A good director or producer or showrunner will then stand up and have everyone introduce themselves. That's the kind of convention, which makes you feel a bit sheepish. And then the read proceeds. And I'm, I'm always checking people out quite, you know, shamelessly at, at read-throughs to see exactly that, what their style might be. A lot of people deliberately underperform at the read-through, and I think that's, that's what you're getting at. But there's a difference between the, the formal read-through, and often it is just a formality, which, which can be useful. And, and it's, it's useful in different ways. It gives, you know, as I say, it gives you a sense of the whole the sort of village feel of the production as it's going to be over the next few months. But I think the really useful thing for the actors, or the more useful thing for the actors, is to have the sessions with the director and their fellow cast members. And that could just be reading a scene that someone's got an idea about or a concern about. And that might just be 20 minutes in a crappy little room somewhere, you know, a few weeks before you actually meet and, and do the do the scene on set, because there isn't much time on set. Often you find you're thinking about things, even with that preparation, you often find you're thinking about things after the event. There's this L'Esprit de l'Escalier where you're on the way back to the train and you think, geez, why didn't I do that? And, and that feeling can go on for years. I mean, even now, you talk to actors and they'll say, you know that movie we did together in 1989? I just hated the way we did that scene at the funeral or something. And you think, well, you, you, it never really goes away. Yeah, you're a different you're a different actor at that point. That's the, that's yeah. probably one of the the key things. Mm. One of your first breaks as an actor was in a play working with an unknown lead at the time, Daniel Day yep. Lewis. I think this <laughs> yeah. this right. was a big a big break for you that happened over thirty years ago. Tell me a little bit about the beginning of your career and how you sort of got going. Yeah, that that was still my biggest and best break. I, I can honestly say that was was nineteen eighty two. 
I'd been to university for three years, and then I was at a drama school in London, a one-year crash course drama school, which sort of built itself as a course for, for graduates and people who wanted to get into the business. It was useful. It was very, very good that I'd done a lot of drama at university because that had been like my rep company, lots of productions in a short space of time. And then, yes, this extraordinary play, Another Country, was running in the West End. And it's an absolute brilliant piece of theatre. It's a succession of short scenes depicting life in a British public school, which is clearly based on Eton. It was essentially an imagining of the schoolboy, the school days of the man who went on to become Guy Burgess, who was one of the most celebrated secret Soviet spies in the heart of the British establishment, who was recruited along with uh, Donald McLean and Kim Philby in the 1930s by, by the Soviets. And these were guys who appeared to be pillars of the establishment. And the mystery was always why they had turned against the establishment and everything it stood for. The idea was that he'd been thwarted or he'd somehow come to see the hypocrisy of the establishment while he was at Eton. That was a brilliant part for an actor. And it was, as you say, it was initially it was Rupert Everett, and then it was Daniel Day-Lewis, and then it was Colin Firth. So there was a whole, there was kind of triumvirate of, of actors who got a, a huge flying start from that. But I had written to the producers while I was still at drama school. And then after a long sort of to and fro of, I thought, lost opportunities, I basically got the call to say, would I mind coming in as an ASM assistant stage manager and understudy this boy called Daniel Day-Lewis who they'd got to take over from, from Rupert Everett. So I did. So I had this amazing introduction where I was working backstage on a show that was getting you know more and more popular, moving scenery around, jumping onto the revolving stage. It was a great thing to do. And I sort of lived down in the bowels of the theatre for nine months. And every now and again, I would go out onto Shaftesbury Avenue, which is the main drag in the West End in London. And it was all neon in those days, you know, neon signs advertising the theatres. And I remember thinking, this is insane. I'm six weeks out of drama school and I've had the biggest break I'm ever going to have in my career. And it's probably going to be downhill from now on. It was an amazing, amazing introduction, but it was the kind of break you read about. I was extremely lucky. Pip, there's so much fantastic drama at the Mm. moment going around, Mm. but isn't it ironic that so much drama years ago was being turned into reality shows, and now Mm. it seems that drama in the long form has, for the last five years, continued to blossom with one highly acclaimed series after another. Is Is that how you found the last five, six, seven years? Absolutely. I couldn't have put it better myself. And, I, and, and you know, everyone talks about a golden age of television. I, I just say, you know, I have this joke, which is not really a joke, which is the internet saved my career. You know, it was indeed the case that a few years ago, it was like everyone was frightened of drama, television companies, and, you know, even the BBC here, they seem to be saying, we'll make drama, but we'll have to make it look like a reality show. Everything was sort of conforming to this reality aesthetic if that's the word i want because it's not particularly aesthetic but but that you know you could do dickens if you filmed it from sort of you know handheld pov stuff following people around in their houses so that it felt like you know you were about to witness something it wasn't fully staged drama and then a few things happened i mean it was still the case i suppose and it must have been with you there as well the generic dramas the medical dramas and the, the police dramas those sort of reliable staples they persisted and the soap operas persisted but the sort of desire to to throw money at drama was was wasn't there and then Downton Abbey came along which I suppose was a bit of a game changer there'd always been long-form dramas you know like the West Wing and the Sopranos I mean that was a kind of golden age as well I I still think the Sopranos is about the best thing I've ever seen and then came the chance to stream this stuff and that and that bumped up the volume and as you say then this extraordinary migration of writing talent moved into television in a really big way and crucially started to create because there was so much volume to fill it seems to me they created a situation where you know character actors became really sought after and and actors of all sorts realized that they would rather commit themselves to you know a 10-hour drama where you can really get into character exposition and narrative and nuanced storytelling in a way that you you just couldn't and hadn't been able to for a long time in the cinema, I mean, you know, the great thrillers I always think of as being either in the 40s, the noir, the noir thrillers, or the kind of parallax view, Three Days of the Condor type thrillers of the late late 70s, when there was really original writing going on in Hollywood. And now it seems much more polarized. And it seems like the great bulk of intelligent, curious, 
you know, strangely flavored, almost experimental dramas moved into, into streamed content. I think that's absolutely the case because everyone saying you have to watch this show and they, they then say it's about this, I don't know, it's about a serial killing hairdresser slash undertaker or something. And it seems so niche. And then you, you look it up and you think, actually, this looks great if you like that kind of thing. And, and people tend to be very evangelical about shows. Yeah, it's been quite extraordinary. And, and I sort of have this joke again, which is only a half joke, because I've done it a couple of times where you look somebody up who you haven't seen for a while, and you might be feeling a little bit sorry about, you know, in a rhetorical kind of way, think what happened to that good looking guy I was on that show with 15 years ago, and you, you go on IMDB and look them up, they've been out in Los Angeles or New Mexico making a show about a serial killing hairdresser or whatever for the last three years, and they're doing very nicely. Thank you. So it's it's absolutely thrilling this proliferation of stuff and it's everything's kind of not mainstream everything has an angle to it so for the character actors point of view it's great and i think that's why people are so enthusiastic you know and i've just been watching um the queen's gambit which has been a big hit for netflix and it's fantastic and it's so cleverly done it's based on a very exciting novel but they filmed it in a really terrific way so that, you know, six hours of chess tournaments never seemed so thrilling. And it's it's just really inventive. And you know, it's an extraordinary time. It's an extraordinary time. It's a great time to be a character actor. Well, you say that the internet saved your career. I, I don't really <laughs> like using the term television because it doesn't really reflect what is going on. For example, People watch streaming now, so you can't really use the word television if your device for mm. viewing it is in a mm. television screen. And we now have a generation that are not watching any television at all. It's all online. So yeah. what do we call it? It seems to me that now we... What we have in our vocab is, um, oh, did you see such and such a show on Amazon Prime? last night mm. or did you see mm. the hulu series the netflix series mm. uh, you know it's episodic series but it's not television i think obviously television at some point is just going to die a natural death yes but no i think would be my short answer i mean i think there's still scope i mean we've had a couple of things bbc shows here recently which have still adhered to the kind of you know maybe the sunday night 9 p.m formula with any luck, we'll want to experience content, we'll continue to want to experience content in, in, in different ways. I mean, I'm trying to think of an analogy. I was watching this clever French film last night called Nonfiction, which is mostly a series of dinner parties of people debating whether and how books will vanish and how we will experience writing and whether texting and email constitute literature in the same way as, as traditional books. And, and it's a debate that's never really, or hasn't, I don't think, been resolved. But I know what you mean. I mean, it's not, we're not tied to conventional schedules anymore. It's still an event. You still make an event. Even if you're binge watching, you're self-consciously creating an event for yourself. I suppose what worries me more is the kind of speed watching stuff. So you watch stuff at twice speed or one and a half times the speed just to get through it. I think that's a problem because then you're, you're perhaps modifying your perception and your brain in a way that, that isn't very helpful. <laughs> But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe in 50 years' time, we'll all be watching stuff at twice the speed we watch it now. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think that the, the scheduling that you pick up on is fundamentally what has absolutely changed the way we watch because mm. they don't have to have the schedule with the advertising, the blocks, and the way that that is all put together. If you want to have one episode at 50 minutes, another episode at 35, it, it can be done. There's no problems with, mm. with streaming. But let's get back to The Crown because I mm. want to talk about the rhythm of a scene and the way that a scene can start one way and then turn into something else that has the ability to engage the viewer and build the tension. It's mm. something that the crown does really, really well. And I want to have a look at one of, I think, your best scenes from season one, episode two, mm -hmm. when you confront Townsend about a job yeah. offer from the Queen Mother. That's right. And the, and the scene starts off all very reasonable and cordial with a job offer until mm. Tommy says, unless I'm missing something, mm. to which Townsend then moves <laughs> in his chair. From that moment on, the knife starts to twist and yeah. turn as Tommy Lassell's 
who constantly is building some tension until some momentum is taken mm. back from Townsend at the end of the scene when he says that he's going to accept the job offer. It's a great scene to dissect and mm. look at how you got there with mm. firstly blocking that scene. Um, tell me a little bit about how that all worked on the day because that scene is I timed it. It's nearly four minutes long. It's right. two men in a room. It starts with the men standing, and then once we're seated, at no yeah. point do we feel bored because we have got static shots. Right. It's all down to the dialogue, and as I say, the way that Tommy <laughs> has this ability to just slowly ramp it up. Well, as you say, it is all down to the dialogue. And I think, you know, people say everyone loves that scene. So many people have said to me how much that they enjoyed that scene. And it is, it's a fantastic um, building scene, as you say. And I think it's its testament to how brilliant and inventive, because we don't know that it was exactly like this, as with all of the crowd, but how brilliant Peter Morgan's writing is. And how he, I think I really benefited from the fact that he he fixed on Tommy as a way of telling the story, as a kind of curator narrator, keeper of the flame, you know, true believer who, who would always be there to, to remind everyone else of why they were there, particularly to remind the young Elizabeth of, of what she was there and why, why it was important. Yes, it's beautifully filmed. It starts with a shot looking down on me at the mantelpiece, having a cigarette and a glass of whiskey, which if you know the character, it's very unusual to see him having a whiskey. And of course, I'm having a whiskey because it's in the immediate aftermath of the unexpected, relatively sudden death of George VI, King George VI, who I knew very well and, and served with right through the Second World War and indeed knew his brother, Edward VIII. So in a way, the reason that the scene with these two men works so well is that actually that room is full of other presences. It's full of, I mean, Margaret is there, obviously, because he's talking about the relationship with her and how dangerous this could be in terms of the uh, the household and by extension, the monarchy. I mean, for Tommy, everything comes back to the preservation of order and, and not doing anything out of the way. But of course, you need to know that Tommy himself had been in and out of the royal household for most of the 20th century, I suppose. I mean, he knew Edward VIII when he was Prince of Wales for many years. He travelled with him. He was part of his household. He was one of the first people to realise that Edward was was fundamentally unsuited to the job that he was being trained for. And he told him as much. And so I think the abdication had come as no surprise to him psychologically, although, of course, it was the great shock of his life from a sort of constitutional and, and political point of view. And then he was he was close and, and a great admirer of Crows too, and a great admirer of uh, the man who became George VI, you know, Edward's brother. I mean, it's clear that Tommy is is grieving in that scene as well, but that he doesn't have time to grieve. And I think the, the why it's such a gift for an actor is that there's a lot beneath the surface with Tommy, but, you know, he has to keep the ship on the right path. And he's constantly being almost thwarted in this by the actions of people like Prince Philip and Princess Margaret, who are straining at the leash because they they realize the kind of gilded cage they find themselves in and they they want to express their individuality and that's a theme that's run through all four seasons of the crown and to an extent extent it's the same story it's the story of of commitment and duty and tommy lassels you know was born in 1887 he joined up for the first world war he survived the first world war largely because he joined a cavalry regiment which really you know tells you something about that period and most of his friends were killed. Almost all of his friends were killed in France in the First World War. And I think he would have come back from that a fairly steely sort of character. And I think, or at least I think he would have developed a steeliness and an intolerance for, you know, lack of integrity, lack of professionalism, which is what permeates this scene. But as you say, it's a very slow ambush of Townsend. I think in, in reality, you know, one has to look at these things realistically and realize that people would have realized there was a problem as a slight feeling of hysteria because Margaret was very, very young when she fell for Townsend. I mean, these days it would be looked on as, as a very distasteful situation because he was so much older than she was. In terms of shooting that scene, it was Stephen Daldry who directed that. And I think he was quite clear. It was, you know, it was just long takes. I think the camera moves in. I would also say, I think that... Um, you know, so much of the success of a production depends on the casting. 
it's so often the case that actors don't quite understand how well cast they are. And they think they have to perhaps do more or learn more or try harder to make the scene convincing. And I've seen actors asking directors for direction or making suggestions. And you can see the director thinking, I cast you. I took six months to decide that you were right for this part. You don't actually have to think about anything. You just have to play the scene. And I'm, I'm saying that because Ben Miles, who plays Townsend, I think brings an extraordinary quality to that character. He, he somehow, somehow, I don't know, because I'd seen him in various things over the years, he somehow projects this absolute honesty and integrity and you know, refusal to, to let these things get him down. But at the same time, there's something fundamentally sad about him. Anyway, I don't know, but I just felt that those characters played off each other really well. And again, it's in the writing, but you know, Ben has less to say and do in, the, in that scene. And yet I couldn't, I don't think the scene would have worked if, if anyone else had been playing the part. Do you know what I mean? He's, he, there's something about his sort of amor propre, which is, which is totally convincing. Just the way that he is looking at you. As you yes. say, you are doing yes. most of the dialogue, but you are looking at him, and it's the look yeah. on his face that you are reacting to, because that's yeah. what it's all about, is yeah. reactions, even though he's not saying anything. He's a great stage actor, you see. So he knows he knows he doesn't have to do a whole lot of stuff. He knows it's all, it's all in the reaction and the response. But he knows the moment to hit the word and to change gears. He does that very, yeah. very well. There's another there's another scene where he kind of gives you a little bit of a dressing down. Margaret is mm. the woman I love and I'll call her any damn thing I like because Lassels right. is saying, you know, call her by her title. Yes, and, that's um, what I'm about. Yes, I'm about to send him off to Brussels. And he's so good in that because you really mm. s you see the actor really at the top of his game. But coming back to this scene, just sort of if we can go back into mm. that room, our indie directors will love to hear yeah. just how, <laughs> how this is staged and how the direction happens. So talk me through the block. Okay, gosh, well, it was, it was a while ago. But as I remember it, you know, you come in and the first thing you do is you take in the scene. I think it's the only scene we did in this room. So my concern would be that it looks like it's a room that belongs to me or that I might use. So I'm looking at what I've got on my desk. And I think there was a, it was a large fish sculpture or something which I wanted to give uh, prominence to because I know Tommy was a very, very keen fisherman. So think you might just tweak things or just ask the art department if you could take a few things off the desk. Very often they give you more than you need. So it's absolutely fine to say, I love this, I'm going to lose this. So, I, you know, so I'm making the most of the trout or the salmon, I think it was. And then you look around and then thinking about the scene. And as I said before, I wanted to make the point that Tommy, although he's not showing very much, has obviously been hit hard by the news. And Tommy had to go, this was at Sandringham, that's right. So I'm thinking it would have been not his most homely office because that wouldn't be his main center of operations. He was based at Buckingham Palace. And as you probably know, the royal family only go to Sandringham for certain sort of holidays and at Christmas and things like that. And it's a fairly, as I understand, it's a fairly dull house. But anyway, the interior looked pretty good. So I would look around and try and inhabit the space as quickly as possible. Uh, you know, it's my room. Ben has to be aware that, you know, I he's been called in for a meeting. He doesn't quite know why. So I, I want to make him feel a bit alienated, I suppose. And then we had this discussion about whether I would have a drink. And I, I seem to remember that I, I said to Stephen, I would like to be drinking a whiskey at this point. Stephen then started, and I do remember it was a very nice shot. I remember admiring it when we when when it came out, which is he's he lo he's looking down on the whiskey glass. It's quite a high, oblique angle. He's looking down on the top of my head and the whiskey glass, and I'm having a long drag on a cigarette, which again is you don't see Tommy doing very much. I've got a pipe, I think, later on. And then in terms of the blocking, I think it sort of blocked itself. I wanted to get back to my desk to sit. And I ask him, I say, will you sit? Tommy always had this expression, will you sit? Which was a typically yes. sort of old fashioned, slightly odd way of saying, please sit down. Will you sit? I love that because it's quite sure how to take it. And I think Townsend does sit, as I remember, and then gets to his, I can't remember how we get back on. No, I don't get back on my feet. I think I, I still sit throughout. I gradually tighten the screw. And the point about the, the, the scene, the Townsend's term as equerry is up. He'd been an enormous favourite because he was good looking and dashing and he'd been a you know, he was a hero in the Battle of Britain and all that kind of thing. And his wife, in in fact, in the in the true history, they were all great friends. And you know, there was quite a sort of 
intimate relationship because you're all in the same goldfish bowl essentially between the, the the inner staff as it were the personal staff and the royals themselves and also crucially with townsend you'd seen that he had previous very intimate history with george VI, who had this terrible stammer and, and really hated any kind of public speaking it was you know much worse than really you see in, the, in anything in the king's speech and i remember stephen saying no you've got to i want to break here because i want you to look out the window and you're you're listening to the clock and the clock at Sandringham Church or wherever it is nearby, there's a clock tower nearby, is, is tolling. Do you remember that? My take on the bell was that there was this moment Tommy was deciding whether or not to go for the jugular. So to me, mm. Tommy looks for a moment of contemplation when those bells rang outside. Yeah. Tommy, Tommy looked at the window, then there was this pause and then Tommy upped the ante to Townsend by saying, you're probably telling yourself that because no one exactly. has confronted you about it, that but, no one can know. No. Allow me, allow me, me. yeah, allow me to disabuse you of that illusion. Dis also, illusion, one of yeah. delusion, one of the best lines written for the show and one of the best deliveries of the line. So, oh my God, so, I had. Someone stopped me, a, a flight attendant on a, on a plane years ago stopped me and said, I have to say that when I get together with my friends, we use that catchphrase to take the piss out of each other, excuse my language. And um, <laughs> it's it just very, very, it was very funny. So it has become a kind of, yeah, kind of a sort of cliche. But that's very interesting. And I would come back to that and say that's a perfect example of Peter's writing in microcosm in that the bell moment the moment where you feel tommy's loss his personal loss his intimation of mortality if you like is the point at which he himself knuckles down because anything like that is dangerous so you see him have a drink and there's a, there's a moment where i have a sort of catch in my voice and i say you know this is a kind and generous offer from a kind and generous man and i, I let you see that i'm if there was any emotion coming out i, I would want to say more about the late king, but I don't, because the whole point is that's not how we do it. And the whole point of this scene is that he has overstepped the line by allowing his emotions to get the better of him. I mean, regardless of the fact that he's married with two small children, what Townsend's done is has very damaging ramifications. And that's what Tommy's trying to say to him. But of course, Townsend's in love with this girl and in terror, you know, probably racked with guilt that he's He's ruining his own marriage. So it's a beautiful, beautiful scene, and it perfectly combines the personal and the political in the way that I think makes The Crown such a success. And very often you get to the end of episodes in The Crown, and suddenly there's a moment we think, oh, right, of course, because that happened, now she knows how to do this, or she understands that you can't have this and that. So I think that's the, that's the masterstroke, and I think this, this scene's a perfect example of that. And the show starts and finishes with some terrific writing from Peter Morgan. And I think mm. it's worthwhile to point out some of the other writers of the show, which includes Edward Hemming, Jonathan mm. Wilson, Laura Dealey, John Britton, Tom Edge, and Nick Payne. Uh, Pip, some of the devices that are used in the writing, like City Luncheon at Civic Hall, Civic Luncheon at City Hall. Uh, that shows Tommy uh, to be a little bit rattled over Townsend on the plane, thus presenting an opportunity to give feedback from Lassels to the Queen. Uh, mm. and, pe and people listening, that this is season one, episode six, 35 minutes in. Now, there's mm. a lot of cunning with the writing with what I call in points to create an opportunity to veer in an economical way with story. And that's really at the heart of the writing. It's very lean and elegant in its shape and structure. Is that your experience on the show? Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, the criticism that comes with that is that he's simplifying or, you know, editing the the actual historical facts for you know dramatic um satisfaction but i think that's fine i mean i think there's been a lot of hoo-ha with season four that there's more liberty being taken with the truth but i think it's quite clear that he everything he does is rooted in real characters and real relationships it's nice to see that i mean as as in all historical dramas one knows that the truth was much more complicated and, and much more long-running obviously than than anything you're seeing on the screen time but uh, no, I, I, I like that. With a character who's supposedly so undemonstrative, any little beat like that is enormous fun to play, obviously, because you're just you're showing a, a, a tiny bit of what might be going on under the surface. 
fascinating man, fascinating character to research, probably the most interesting person I've ever had to do research on. I had to watch that scene a couple of times because the on the aeroplane with the city luncheon at Civic Hall, yeah. uh, to begin with, I thought, oh, maybe Tommy Lassells has said that deliberately so that the Queen turns and says, is everything all right? And it gives Tommy the opportunity <laughs> to then speak. I don't think he'd do that deliberately. I think that that's that's a that's a fluff. He genuinely makes that fluff. It's a nice way of bringing it to her attention. Now, on a show like The Crown, how early do you get the script of scenes before you shoot them? Well, because Peter at that stage was pretty much the solo writer and lead writer in season one, I think my memory is we got them fairly early on. But at the same time, because he's almost like showrunner in status, you know, he reserves the right to supply you things at the very last minute. I had an entertaining experience on season three. I think I was actually filming in Australia at the time and I got an email from the producer because I'd had this sort of joke that when they announced they were recasting after season two, I mean, Peter had been quite clear that he wanted to do that and he'd, he'd made that public to us and to, I think, everyone from early days. So I would sort of, you know, have these sort of lighthearted conversations with him and with other members of the, of the producing team to say, look, look, I get it, I get it. And I remember saying this to Will Keane, who plays Michael Adeen, and he was laughing. He said, I know, I know what you're doing, and the answer's going to be no. I said, look, the, the, you can replace the royals, but in a way, the, the household, us guys, you know, we're like vampires. We never really die. We go on and on. And I said, and, you know, Tommy Lassell's lived from 1887 to 1981. You know, he, he died at the age of 94. He, and he started in the time of Queen Victoria, and he lived long enough to see the fireworks for Charles and Diana's wedding. So... You know, that's an extraordinary lifestyle. Wouldn't it be great if we all just came back and they were going? And in fact, one of the producers said to me, well, listen, we've had every kind of discussion about what to do, despite, you know, this, um, you know, the overall imperative that we'll need a new cast for season three. But she said there have been all kinds of, uh, of discussions around it. And, and that, you know, that has been mooted. And I'm afraid to tell you that's been that's been rejected as well. Then I was in Australia and I got, a, I got an email from one of the producers saying, look, they're, they're thinking of getting you for a flashback scene, the, the lovely scene in season three where they decide that really Margaret should become queen because she's much better at dressing up and, you know, acting. And, you know, which this brilliant idea which informs the whole sort of Margaret narrative right through to season four, we've seen Helena Bonham Carter. And then I got another email saying, listen, just let you know, it's going to be a montage There'll be nothing for you to say. Um, you're just in a sequence with other people. And I thought, that's fine. I'll come in for a day and that'll be, that'll be very nice. And then about 36 hours before I was due to film, I got, I think, four pages of A4 script of monologue, not just monologue, but classic Tommy Lassell's monologue on con constitutional monarchy and how it has to always follow certain lines. And this was this then became a sort of terrible dressing down for Margaret and Elizabeth from Tommy in the flashback, you know, I suppose about 1946 or something, where I'm saying, you know, the, con the, the principle of hereditary succession is a bulwark of the constitutional monarchy, and that's why it always has to be like this, which is very funny, it's brilliant, and that, that tells you exactly what Peter can and can't do. And in fact, that was that was a wonderful scene. I remember seeing it and thinking it, it needed just that. But yeah, you have to be on your toes. If the writer is as much part of the process as Peter is, then, you know, that can always happen, and you get pages coming in at the very last minute. I've had that on other shows, but of course, with Tommy, if you're getting new stuff, the chances are it's going to be like that. It's going to be, you know, mm -hmm. a quick lecture on the Royal Marriages Act of 1772 or whatever it might be. And that's, it's great to do, but you have to learn the bugger, you know. It's quite funny to get it virtually the night before. And what about yeah. the workshopping of the scenes? Do you have time, genuine time for that? Um, well, yes and no. And I think, you know, even though I said, you know, it's great to have any time at all in practice, there's not, there's never enough time to do that. And I think Matt and Claire and John Lithgow and people like that probably would have had a few more sessions, but even they would probably say, you've got to make the most of the time you get. It's never built in. It's never in, as incorporated as you would like. I mean, there are directors, I think probably more indie auteur directors who can say, I'm going to have a three-week rehearsal period as I would for a play, and then we'll just go and, and shoot it. And that's great because I think the more time you spend in those situations, then the more time you save on set is in performance time. It's not necessarily the case that the shoot time is reduced. 
um, although it'd be nice to think so. It's been interesting working on shows in lockdown and um, you know doing more prep, coming in for rehearsals which involve real almost sort of lighting rehearsals and blocking rehearsals to a greater degree of detail than you would normally have because on the day when you come to shoot it there's much less scope for getting the lighting crew in for example to to tweak things as you go along which would normally be the case and it just makes you think again that if it were possible it would be great to have an almost mandatory rehearsal period built into any production you do i remember back in years and years ago doing classic dramas at the bbc you know, of plays. I did two, did a George Bernard Shaw play at the BBC. And in those days, you would rehearse in a full-scale studio in a separate part of London. And there was a block of all these studios for all the BBC productions, which meant you'd go in, you'd go to the canteen for lunch and you'd see, you know, Morecambe and Wise, these great cult British comedians standing in line next to, you know, Sir John Gielgud or something. They'd all be rehearsing different productions in the same block. And in our case, you'd rehearse a play. The the crew would come in and follow you around the studio, working out their shots. And then you would go, the whole thing would then go to television centre, as it then was, four or five days. And they would then film you with, with multi-camera, with someone in the gallery calling the shots. And you, you'd do great sort of sections, almost whole acts of, of the play, as a sort of three-dimensional theatrical production with these huge cameras on rostrums following you around and you needed to know what camera you were on but essentially you were playing the scene so that was an amazing mixture of, of preparation and, and and filming that's really what the process is in that mm. scene i just want to look at another scene from the crown it's mm. a story about to break in the press about peter townsend's love affair with uh, princess margaret your yeah. character tommy lassell's delivered the news to the Queen Mother in Season 1, Episode 6. And as Tommy is delivering the news, we can see from the slow push-in on the Queen Mother, Tommy's hands behind his back, he's fidgeting, which Mm. was a a real (laughs) juxtaposition because on the surface, Tommy is the ironclad stoic strength of control, but behind yeah. his back, we see the hands are telling us another story. It it wasn't the first time either that I observed the hands moving like that. Mm. As, an, as an audience, we're being shown something very deliberate, but mm. also the way that we are being shown it is very subtle. In other mm. words, there are two things within the frame. The emphasis... Mm is on the Queen Mother, but the side issue for those that pick up on it is Tommy is feeling a little nervous. Was that yeah. the intention or am I running off down a rabbit hole on that? No, I, d- I don't think you are. It's, it's entirely possible that I was just twitching my fingers without knowing it. And I, I'm one of those actors who really has to watch what their hands are doing. So I like to have a sort of plan of action for my hands. And the, the great thing about Tommy was that because, you know, there are protocols. We had a wonderful royal expert, David Rankin Hunt, on The Crown, who would answer almost any question. And I think had met Tommy and was constantly reminding me what an odd man he was. Um, what do you do with your hands? What's the right protocol? So hands behind the back, yes. But there's a lot of sort of... Tommy's always sort of guiding people into rooms or getting them to do things he wants to do. But, of course, you can't touch anybody. You can't order anybody to do anything. And I sort of evolved this thing where the left hand was always behind my back in the small of the back. And my my right hand was free and would often slightly get a life of its own. And I realized that that made sense for an ex-cavalry man. And, and Tommy was a gr- very talented horseman. He was a very good rider, apparently, one of, one of the best around. I, I think that little attention to detail, though, Pip, was, was mm. great because it's mm. something that I, I noticed. And I, it was down for me to ask you about that. And it definitely brings something, whatever it is, it bring it adds to the flavour of the character. Mm, mm. I think that's important. And I think, you know, lots of people have said to me, they really, in, you know, they, they loved the show and they really liked the character. And I think, again, that is Peter Morgan being very clever about, you know, giving you a lot of information. Because even if you're familiar with that period, you need to know a lot of stuff. You need to know why Margaret... Margaret's affair constituted such a crisis. You need to know what the options would be. And very often that's just straightforward technical explanation or history. So you need a character who can do that and also be part of the cast, be a convincing player in, in the drama. And I think Peter really did that very well. And uh, yeah, Tommy was a fascinating man. Those scenes with Victoria, who played Queen Mother, I, I particularly enjoyed. And they were they seemed to me different from the scenes with Claire because 
Tommy and the Queen Mother had really got to know each other, I think. I think there was, you know, she was very good, the Queen Mother, at cultivating people, and she was very affectionate in her letters, almost, you know, surprisingly so. If you read her letters, they're very sweet and bubbly. And I think she was clever as well. She traded on that. She was a very good, you know, twist around the finger. So, yes, that that sort of nervousness is perhaps has, he's worried for her because he knows this is going to upset her. And he knows that she understands as well as he does the sort of political ramifications that, you know, the ramifications for the crown, because ideally you just want Margaret nicely parceled off. You know, as I say to Elizabeth later on, you know, you're the number one, you're the heir, she's the spare. I don't quite put it like that. But when we have the discussion about, you know, whether Martin Charteris should take over from me as private secretary, and I have to explain to her that that's not how we do it, that that, that's, that's what I mean. The Queen Mother instinctively understands these things, albeit that she's been initially prevailed upon by Margaret to offer Peter Townsend a job, which he shouldn't really be even considering. And one of the crucial elements I thought you brought to the character of Tommy is the spoken word. Now, the audience, mm. of course, is, a, is along for the ride and gets sucked into the character mm. more if this is executed well. But mm. filmmakers, especially indie filmmakers, often the delivery of words and how they are spoken doesn't mm. have the full magnifying attention to detail. Mm. Of course, we can say a line a thousand different ways. There is the speed of the delivery, the pitch, the pausation for effect, the diction, the emphasis of a word. It's clear that words mean a great deal to you, Pip, and Mm. like all of the best performers, you've made something look very uh, difficult, appear easy and natural. (laughs) So. What is your process when you're looking at a script and deciding about all of the speaking dialogue and the words? Well, that's a very good question. I suppose it varies from character to character and script to script. I remember years ago, I worked with Anthony Hopkins on Remains of the Day. I don't know if he told me this then or I read about it, but so I remember thinking I'd never worked with anyone who was as fluent and convincing, obviously he was a genius. And his te- he just reads the script. He just reads the entire script again and again and again and again. And he, he absorbs the whole thing. And I think that's, and he's a fantastically natural actor. And certainly in, in Remains of the Day, I thought he should have got another Oscar. But if he hadn't won it the year before, he probably would have got it for that. But it's a great benefit if the script is well written, as it is in this case. And it's a great benefit if you're playing a character who tends to give, as we were just saying, speeches or synopses on 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 the situation for the benefit of the the character, the, the the young queen, and of course, by extension, the audience, who often need to know this stuff as well. But then it works for the character because Tommy, if you look into his history, and I did, I, I read everything I could find that he'd written. You know, there are three volumes of diaries, and they're all beautifully written. And he is absolutely, as I said before, I touched on before. You know, a man from a, a lost age, even even in the fifties. There would have been very few people like him around of that era. And it, it truly was, you know, generation on a whole section of society, a whole section of men who would have otherwise gone on to form the establishment in one form or another in, in their different societies. And part of that is this amazing erudition, which Tommy wore very lightly, that, you know, he'd had an extraordinary education. He'd been to Marlborough, which he didn't like very much, and, and uh, Oxford, Trinity Oxford, which he adored. And he just, War. He had a huge amount of classical knowledge. Uh, he could quote poetry. His his letters are, are surprisingly um, emotional and lyrical. And his descriptions of hunting, for example, and and fishing, you know, are, are extraordinary. The fishing stuff is quite technical, but the, the descriptions of being out on a horse and galloping across country are, are very good. Someone compared him to to um, Siegfried Sassoon, you know, who famously wrote memoirs of a fox hunting man, and they said, you know. A lot of Tommy's writing is every bit as good as, as Sassoon's. So, but these guys wouldn't parade it. You know, he had he wrote letters to his sister full of funny little rhymes and allusions and things like that. That, yeah, there's an attention to detail and I think an attention to language in the character. It, that was a real gift that you had a character with that slight sort of, you know, oratund aspect to him and, and you could play that for all it was worth. Yeah, but words, though, it's something that has been with you for obviously a long, long time because of the way that you're able to inhibit those words, deliver those words within the character. That... That is not just the crown. This has been with you for probably, what, back back to the stage days. I suppose so. And thinking back to another country, that that's another beautifully written play. And part of the attraction of doing that or of 
when I went to see that play. In fact, friends of mine at drama school said, you should go and see this play because there's a guy in it who's just like you. And he's got all these long speeches and they'd be very good for audition pieces. And at that time, we were all desperately focused on getting out of drama school and, and auditioning for regional theatre companies for which we would need audition speeches. That was the thing. You know, I was like playing lawyers, barristers in courtroom dramas or in courtroom drama scenes because you know you're going to get a great speech. You know you're going to get something theatrical with well-thought-out language in it and it won't just be yes and no and this and that. And the other important part of delivering the lines is movement. Tommy has a very economical way that he moves. It's precise <laughs> what he is doing. The movement is always in sync with the dialogue. One of my pet peeves is when the body movement doesn't match the dialogue within a scene. An actor might look in a direction that has no bearing on the scene, mm. or there's a hand movement, a head roll, and suddenly you're kicked out of the scene. The Crown, however, is a masterclass for all of this to indie film directors. So tell us how you have been able to work in the movement of Tommy along with obviously the dialogue, which we've just talked about. Well, I suppose with Tommy, any sort of physical movement, just like his emotional movement, if I can use that expression, is about control. And if Tommy has a watchword, it's control and stability, I suppose. Um, and he, you know, he lectures the, the Queen several occasions about how important it is that, you know, we do things just like we've always done them, rather like Queen Mary. Eileen Atkins at one point has this wonderful scene with, with Claire where she says, you've got to, and Claire says, I'm doing nothing. And, and Eileen has this scene where she says, that's the whole point. That's what we do. You do nothing. That's the mystique of the institution. And the movement, I suppose, for Tommy, the physical movement, the physical expression is all conditioned by that control. And in fact, so many of my scenes took place in very controlled environments. You know, these claustrophobic rooms with Townsend or the, the long conversations. I remember the, the joy of doing those scenes with um, Victoria Hamilton where we're, we're discussing how we're going to manage people. And they, they shot those in Lancaster House, which is this foreign office building. It's a sort of disused palace, I suppose you could say, in, in, in London next to Buckingham Palace, which they just really use for state visits. So it's empty most of the time, but it's about, geez, I don't know, 150, 200 yards long. So you can do a tracking shot or a steadicam shot, which basically never needs to end. So you'd be walking and walking and walking and talking. And, and you know, we'd realize we had a lot more time to say what we were going to say. And there's something delicious about that, the fact that they can show the enormous size and the fact that if we wanted to, we could run around and turn somersaults and all this sort of space and power that's just referred to. I mean, one of my favorite scenes in the whole thing was a scene they shot at Wilton House, southwest of England, which has this extraordinary vast drawing room, which almost looks like the Sistine Chapel. And it was painted, I think, and decorated by Rubens or Van Dyck, I think it was, who, who painted the famous portraits of King Charles I. The whole room looks like a mini Sistine Chapel. It's insanely over-decorated and, and wealthy looking. And they did a scene where I think I'm sitting or someone's sitting and having a, a nice cup of tea with the Queen Mother. And the establishing shot for that is just priceless because it's this vast, great room, these little figures in the corner. And nobody at any point says even, oh, I do like this room or isn't it wonderful? They just take this for granted. So in terms of movement and lack of movement and, and potential power and how, how power is expressed, you know, um, that economy, that control is, is, is very cleverly done, I think. And it makes it more dramatic when people do do, you know, like when Margaret gallops off on horseback to try and escape and can't, you know, and, and, and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, but it's, it's, it's nice always to play buttoned up, restrained characters in that way, because you can, you can imply so much with very little. And sometimes the writing can come down to a single word, but then the actor has to execute the word in a scene. The meaning of a word manifestly from the dictionary is failed to exercise good judgment. When Tommy is hauling Martin over the yeah. coals for trying to skip protocols for taking his job after Tommy yeah. retires, Tommy yeah. says to Martin, look, you've worked here for three years. Mm. I would have thought that long enough for you to know the ropes, understand the rules, the way mm. things are done. As Tommy is saying that, you can feel what is coming. You know yeah. something is yeah. being squeezed. 
And Martin just falls into the trap by saying, I think I do. And then Tommy, slowly looking up from his desk, says, manifestly, manifestly not. Manifestly not. No, beautiful, beautiful choice of, of, of words. Because, you know, manifestly sim- simply means, you know, you have demonstrated, you know, Tommy could have said that in so many other ways, just as manifestly not, meaning... <laughs> You know, you you've just I know exactly what you've been doing, and and you know the, the, it's it's clearly the case that you have done the exact opposite of what you should have done given your three years' experience. But instead of saying all that, just as you say, manifestly not conveys the whole thing. Um, well, you've managed to focus an intense point of concentration into the performance, which I think, without doubt, is your biggest strength. And it's another good example of executing a simple word that puts a full stop on Martin's behavior, as you say, and the audience is in no doubt that Tommy has had the last word. Mm, that's right. That's right. And and even when the Queen comes to see him immediately after that scene and says, look, I want Martin, and I, uh, I that's almost my favorite scene, I think. I take her through very briefly what went wrong with Edward VIII and how it was the little things. And I say it's the, the it's in the little things that the rot begins, I think is the expression I use. Just you you see him explaining it so so nicely and in such a controlled way. And even though she, I think, leaves the room at the end of that saying, well, I want Martin, and that's that. And Tommy has this classic expression, which he uses again and again, where he says, of course, the decision is yours, meaning you know perfectly well the decision is not yours. The decision is that you will do what has always been done because as as queen mary said the main thing is to just go on either doing nothing or doing things as we have always done changing nothing um so even when he perhaps doesn't seem to have won and that's true of the townsend scene as well where townsend leaves him blazing defiance you can see this is just the beginning of a, a campaign or it, nothing as obvious as a campaign but tommy has marked townsend's card and that is in many ways the beginning of the end for him and a question about the Queen. Have you ever gotten the chance as a result of uh, the Crown to, to meet the Queen? <laughs> no, I haven't. I think it's very unlikely. I did meet Princess Anne many years ago at a premiere. I was struck by what a dull job it must be that she simply had to come down this line trying to think of things to say to people from a world she knows nothing about, about a film she hasn't yet seen. And the the, the ability that they have to sort of nod and speak and move on and, and, and you realize it's happened to you but you're not quite sure what happened in the moment itself so this is very strange well here's a true or false question for mm. you i have flown with queen elizabeth ii true or false i i'm gonna guess that that's true craig yeah so this is from <laughs> this is from the telegraph newspaper in 1995 a lot of people uh-huh. won't realize this so i've pulled it up to read it out so from the yeah. newspaper in 1995 queen elizabeth ii broke with tradition by taking a regular commercial airliner to new zealand spending 25 hours in the air in a specially equipped first class compartment the mm. trip was believed to be the first by a british monarch on a commercial flight first class had been fitted with a bed and a table and chairs 26 of the queen's staff flew in business class and there were 384 regular fare paying customers in economy class the decision to take a scheduled commercial flight rather than use a special royal plane was made to save money for the New Zealand government, which Mm -hmm. was paying for the trip. Even after reserving the entire first class and business class, the trip cost less than half the estimated £600,000. So there you go. Wow. And you were on that flight? (laughs) I was on the flight going back from New yeah. Zealand. It was a funny story because I, I used to work in radio back then and I had a friend working at Air New Zealand that got me on the, the flight. Obviously, flying with the Queen for that amount of time in an aircraft was very strange mm. sitting there. I remember us landing in Los Angeles and everybody looking out the windows to the police cars there was about five or six police vehicles on either side as the plane came into the gate and Mm. then we flew off to Heathrow from LA 
and the plane was full of Germans. So the plane was bound for Frankfurt, mm. but the Germans, when they arrived at Auckland to catch this flight, had no idea that they were flying with the Queen. Oh, right. And the first thing that happened, they were given a piece of paper that said, this evening you are flying with uh, Queen Elizabeth II, and you have to go through three uh, checkpoint Charlies. It was a really interesting, yeah. uh, interesting trip. She was the only one. So it landed at Heathrow. She was the only one that got off, and then we uh, carried on to Frankfurt. So. Wow! Wow! Now, I don't think they've repeated that. I don't know how she. Well, she doesn't travel now, really. It was a one-time deal. We were given a souvenir pen, which my mother got. <laughs> <laughs> and had much delight in all the, the friends and the families that said, that's not true. Craig didn't fly with the Queen. And she ripped out the pen and said, look, very, here's the very good. Great. The that's a great. It's a great quiz question, Craig. That's, that's one to keep in your back pocket. Well, on that note, Pip, it's been a real eye-opener uh, to both <laughs> you as a working actor at the top of your craft and all of the insights that you have offered us today on the Netflix series, The Crown. I'm certainly looking forward to following your career. And thank you so much for coming on Shoot It Now. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Craig. I've had a really good time. It was, it was great fun. And, and thanks for all your intelligent and very probing questions. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.